I am always encouraged by those reports that the gospel was preached. We know that the word of God goes forward to accomplish its purposes. We also know that God works through his people to rebuild basketball courts and basketball is God's sport. Those kids understand that up there and that's why they come and they come really to hear the word of God and so thankful for the privilege that God has given us as a church over the years to proclaim the truth. It's an awesome thing. Well, we're in the book of Acts in chapter two. We've been considering the very noteworthy event of Pentecost. Our Lord, if you'll remember, just by way of refresher, has resurrected from the dead and he has ascended back to glory some 40 days after his resurrection. He has instructed his followers to wait until they were clothed with power from on high and that they would be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, out to Judea, Samaria, and even the whole world. He told them they would be baptized not many days from now with the Holy Spirit, and they have been waiting for a period of 10 days. It is now the 50th day, and Jews have gathered from all over the Mediterranean world. They have come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and you'll remember that 120 disciples are gathered in a room, and they are waiting when suddenly and dramatically the Lord pours out his spirit upon his people. There was a deafening noise, if you remember, like a violent rushing wind. I've wondered sometimes as I've been in an airport and I hear those jet planes taking off, if you've ever been close to it, it is deafening. I wonder how loud this was. It was a tsunami of sorts, this noise that, filled the house and it came alongside of tongues that appeared like fire on on the heads of these disciples. And there was a massive crowd, if you remember, gathered outside in the streets for the Feast of Pentecost who heard this sound and were drawn then to the place where these 120 are to find out what had happened. That was all very convenient because the 120 now filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak fluently with languages they had never studied as they proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. And it is at this point in verse 14 that Peter is put forward to declare the truth, to preach the gospel of God. Preaching has always been God's way, his means, it ever will be the very means by which he saves sinners. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Peter, who has been commissioned by Christ, is convinced of his calling. He stands before the thousands and he gives an explanation for the supernatural phenomena that they had all heard and seen. Now, Peter understands that true preaching is expository preaching. Peter takes 
three Old Testament passages to explain what these people had heard and seen. He takes a a passage from the prophet Joel that we'll look at today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see that he takes a section from Psalm 16. And then he will also take the very first verse from Psalm 110 to make a point about the Lord Jesus Christ. The thrust of Peter's message this morning as we consider his quotation from the book of Joel is this. Number one, God's promise of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon God's people signifying that these are in fact the last days. Point number two, the day of the Lord is coming with wrath and indignation for all who refuse God's salvation, but blessing and honor for those who will receive it. And the third point and the, and the real punchline of Peter's sermon is this, the time to call upon the Lord for salvation is now. Peter rises up as the foremost spokesman of the apostles and he begins in the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to feed Christ's sheep. Peter's first sermon. Amazing. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, And beloved, so much about preaching can be found in this short phrase alone. Peter stood that he might be visible. Peter raised his voice that he might be heard. And he declared God's truth. A sermon is not a discussion. It is not sharing. There is nothing about preaching that is timid or in any way, shape, or form retreats. Peter is not offering his perspective, one among many. He stands before these thousands and he trumpets forth the word of God. This is an energized man with an earnest message. He has been commissioned by God. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He must speak and the people must listen. Men of Judea, he begins, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. He calls his Jewish audience to attention. And this message, if you remember from the scriptures, is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And here from the very spiritual epicenter of Israel, Peter calls to the Jews. It's very evident. He says, men of Judea, in other words, fellow Jews. He says, all who are living in Jerusalem. Down in verse 22, men of Israel. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know. These thousands of people who have gathered at this point for the feast 
having heard this violent rushing wind, are bewildered, and the crowd has seen tongues of fire, and they have heard the great testimony of God in their own languages, in whatever countries they have come from to gather in Jerusalem, they heard in their own language the glory of God declared. And amidst this noisy chatter and the noisy interaction of the crowd, it must have been very, very substantial, and yet Peter in some way stands up, raises his voice over it all, and calls the masses to attention, and by way of commandment says, listen up, each of you. Again, Peter is preaching, not by way of suggestion, but by way of commandment. And his preaching is bold, and it is full of divine authority, and he is calling as Christ is compelling him, and as the Spirit undoubtedly is, is driving Peter, it's almost irresistible at this moment for Peter that he must stand and he must declare the truth. And you'll remember in verses 12 and 13, as you heard them read earlier this morning, that there were two distinct responses, weren't there, to this mighty supernatural act of God. There was one group amidst the masses that was astonished and wondered at these things. There was another group that mocked in the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. They mocked saying, these people are just full of sweet wine. They're drunk. Peter will answer both of them, and he will give an explanation for the supernatural phenomena that they've seen to the mockers. He says in verse 15, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. In Jewish thought, they divided the day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and they, they looked at that as being the full day, and so if, if the day begins at 6 and it's now the third hour of the day, what time is it? Nine o'clock, that's third grade math. You can do it. And they could do it. And Peter is mocking the mockers. Peter says to them, it's nine in the morning. Don't be foolish. Nobody's drunk by nine. I guess unless you buy one of those drink packages that you can buy on a cruise. Somebody told me yesterday you get, I don't know, 15 drinks a day or something. Perhaps those folks, but not here. Not here. Drunkenness is absolutely an unreasonable explanation for what you see. So what is it? Peter says, glad you asked. Verse 16, to the sincere, to those who wondered, Peter says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now before we go a step further, beloved, could anybody stand here this morning, rise up and say to me, here is what the prophet Joel had to say. Let that sit for a moment because Peter knew what the prophet Joel had said and Peter's audience knew for the most part what the prophet Joel had said. Beloved, we must know what the prophet Joel has said. We must know the Older Testament. 
If you're anything like me and you've trafficked only in the Old Testament, you are missing out on the first part of the story. Peter is connecting something from way back here with something in his present moment, and he will connect it out with the end of time. That is the way you gain understanding and wisdom and know what God has said. We have got to strive to continue to master the word. There are so many portions, particularly in the Older Testament, which we are utterly ignorant, which is why we preach a steady diet of both, which is why right now we're, we're making our way through the Pentateuch. Charles has been doing that. Beloved, where are you at 9 o'clock? Or do you not need to know the Old Testament? You need to be here. Growing in your understanding and your grasp of the word. You need both your fruits and vegetables. And the New Testament is fruit. It's delicious. The Old Testament tends to be more like vegetables. And, and we should learn from this, you need to go eat your vegetables. That's what, that's what the Lord would teach us through this. You should know what Joel has said. So what is it Joel has said? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know the great principle. When you encounter an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, you cannot just make of that whatever you will. You've got to go back to the Old Testament and understand in context what has been said there. So we're going to take a few minutes to do that. And if you're hoping to get out of here today at noon, you're out of your mind. Not going to happen. So settle in. we got lunch for you. Just relax. We'll leave a full exposition of this book for another time, but, but let me give you the cliff notes, okay? What is Joel about, and why does Peter quote this passage? Joel is a very short book. It's three chapters. I'd encourage you to read it this evening while, while the iron's hot. It is three chapters of predictive prophecy where Joel is speaking from a historical context. He's addressing things that are going on in Israel and in his midst at that time. But he is also speaking things that project all the way out to the close of this era. There is a greater fulfillment of all that Joel has written and Peter quotes. And you need to understand this, that prophecy is never given in Scripture in a vacuum. The prophets are not just talking about future things for the sheer sake of sort of foretelling the future. They're always talking in a context and in a particular historical context about things happening in their time. But those things serve as a harbinger of things to come. They're foreshadows of what will be fulfilled in even a greater way in the future. It anticipates future events. In fact, prophetic statements oftentimes have multiple fulfillments, don't they? We talked about this back in Mark chapter 13, that sometimes things are prophesied or spoken in Scripture which, are, which, which seem like one event, but they're separated sometimes by hundreds or thousands of years it's like looking at the Sierra Nevada, we said, from, from a distance. It looks like one giant mountain running down the spine of California. But if you get out there and actually fly over it or you backpack through it, you realize that there are a number of peaks that are all connected that make up this one range. 
so it is with prophecy. There's no clear statement, for example, in the Old Testament that there would be two distinct comings of the Messiah. From the Old Testament, it just looks like the Messiah is coming. But now we understand with the revelation of the New Testament that there are actually two comings of that Messiah and they are separated by thousands of years. So we gain insight as time moves on as redemption history unfolds. And Joel's prophecy works just this way. He was dealing with the Jewish nation in his day, but he's talking about the Jewish nation way, way, way out in front of him. Now Joel's theme is the day of the Lord. In fact, he introduces the concept to the prophets, though they use it a lot. It is the day of Yahweh. It's one of the most significant themes in all of scripture. It's used many, many times in the Old Testament and in the New, and it can refer to any time that God acts in judgment and in blessing. It can be used to refer to all kinds of peaks along the way of God's acting in this world in a supernatural way, in a definitive way, both to judge and to bless. Now, ultimately, capital Day of Yahweh refers to a time at the end of this earth, at the end of fallen human history, when Christ will return and God will be ultimately vindicated. His righteousness and his wrath will be expressed and upheld. Sinners will be judged. And you will also see at that very same time that his righteousness will be demonstrated as he rewards his people and he exalts his people. That will be the time, beloved, when everything's going to be made right. This is the time surrounding the second coming of Christ. He will reveal himself in might and in power and in authority and he will bring to light everything good and he will bring to light everything evil. In this day, he will establish righteousness and he will right every wrong. And it is, as I've already said, a day of profound contrasts. The day of the Lord is a day of terrifying judgment for sinners who have rebelled against him and it is a day of unimaginable blessing for all who have trusted in Christ for salvation. The book of Joel opens in the first chapter with the nation of Israel under a devastating locust attack. These are not little minor grasshoppers, these are locusts. And the sky was black. And whatever the first wave of locusts left, as they passed through, the second wave devoured. And whatever the second wave devours, the third wave of locusts comes through and devours. And there's even a fourth wave that comes through and devours till there is nothing left. And Israel is in desperation. They have no food. Animals are dying in the fields. They don't even have enough food to make an offering to God. This invasion of locusts, Joel says, is a preliminary judgment. It is a harbinger of what is going to come in the end if Israel does not repent. 
The plague of locusts really is, it's, it's a warning. It is, it is the backdrop. It is foreshadowing ultimately the impending day of judgment that will come to the unbelieving and the unfaithful. And Joel is calling on Israel to mourn and to repent over their rebellion so that nothing like this will befall them in the end and that they might escape the coming doom and even enjoy and delight in the Lord's presence and in his favor forevermore. And then you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, and through the rest of the book, Joel is foretelling the restoration and the blessing upon a repentant Israel in that great day, when God will, in his day, judge the nations that oppose Israel and bless them once more and fulfill his promises to them. And according to Joel's prophecy, there will be material restoration in chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, there will be spiritual restoration. And that's the section we'll, we'll read through today. And there will be a final national restoration. That's the whole of chapter 3. Irv Busnitz comments on this. He says, summer, and by way of summary, thus the day of Yahweh will result in universal restoration. And he means universal in the, in the, in the, in the widest term. The universe will be restored, accompanied by the abasement and the distress and the death of the unrighteous and the exaltation of the righteous one, that is Christ. And it will result in the knowledge of Yahweh. Even the land will enjoy unprecedented fruitfulness and productivity. The godly remnant will enjoy peace and prosperity and the dwelling presence of Yahweh himself. This is what the book of Joel is about. And Joel is working from his contemporary situation, pushing the locust off his, off his paper, if you will, just so he can clear enough space to write. He is writing to Israel about their present day, but he is looking forward to the great and yet future day when Christ returns. And all of this really is swept up in Peter's preaching. Joel points to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as that very demarcation point to say, look, we're in the last days. This is the last chapter. We're in the fourth quarter. And the day of the Lord is coming. And you need to repent and look to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the thrust of what Peter is preaching from the book of Joel. The the final epic for this fallen world and judgment is near for all who reject the Lord, but there is promised this profound spiritual blessing and favor for all who trust him, and that's what Peter picks up on in verse 17. Now, before we look at it, I want to say this at least one last time. I cannot emphasize this enough. We took four or five weeks to look at the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. People look to this passage and their first thought is charismatic and Pentecostal. You should look at this passage and your first thought should be Christ. This is about Jesus. This is a Christocentric sermon. It's about his death. It's about his resurrection. It is about the ascension. And the fact that Christ has ascended is why Christ can now pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people. 
What you see, Peter says, is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes chapter 2 in verses 18 to 32, verse 17. And it shall be, Peter says, note this carefully, underlying this, in the last days. That's important. This is a common expression in both the Old Testament and the New again. It's clear from Scripture, get this, that we are now presently in those last days. In fact, the last days were inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. Hebrews 1-2 tells us that in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us in his Son. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. 1 Peter 1.20, he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Hebrews 9.26 tells us, now once at the consummation of the ages, he, Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul simply says in 1 Corinthians 10.11 that we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. And you say, what are you telling me, that the the last days have lasted for over 2,000 years? That's exactly right. You're in them. We're in them. And there is an urgency in this passage that ought to grip our hearts, that ought to burden us. If we've turned to Christ for hope and we we have sought him, and we want to be sanctified in him so that when we, we don't need to hang our head in shame when he returns. This should motivate us, but it also ought to motivate us as his witnesses to proclaim the gospel to a world that's on the brink of collapse, for the souls that are on the brink, the doorstep of hell. There is urgency in all that Peter is preaching here. And he understands that this pouring forth of the Spirit on Pentecost is a crystal clear sign that this last era, these last days are upon us. This marks, Peter says, the beginning of the end. It was a demonstration, if you will, that the, the redemption train was still moving down the track and that it's picking up speed. Peter is not saying by quoting Joel that somehow that train has arrived at its destination. But it's moving there, and it's moving quickly. Just some commentators. Daryl Bach, Luke sees the start of the decisive eras of fulfillment as happening in these recent events. Schnabel writes, the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Messiah and Savior, with the climax of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, constitutes the beginning of the final epoch in history when God has acted in a decisive manner to bring salvation through his Son. Irv Busnitz, Joel saw the end point of the whole process while Peter is fixing his eyes on the onset. The outpouring of the Spirit, beloved, meant that this eschatological age, this final epoch, had come. And as we come to this last chapter, these last days, as the sun is setting on on the world's stage, we need to realize that there is a day of judgment and a day of deliverance coming, and it is at hand. The day of the Lord, Paul says what? Will come like a thief in the night. 
and we should be ready that that night would not overtake us. So Peter will implore his audience to flee the wrath of God in repentance and faith. And I want you to look at me again at Joel's prophecy in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Now the Holy Spirit has always been active among the people of God. We covered that. But there is a greater demonstration, a greater outpouring, a greater intensification of the Spirit's ministry after this day in Pentecost. We noted that in times past that the Spirit used to come powerfully and uniquely upon particular people for a particular ministry, for a particular season of time. But on this side of Pentecost, it's different. Not just a few people get the Spirit of God in, in a unique way for special enablement. Now the Spirit comes, I love the way Larkin put it, he says the Spirit comes like a torrential downpour upon a parched earth. And the Spirit is given to every believer in full measure Some see this, and I think rightly, it's, it's a very intriguing passage, actually. In Numbers chapter 11, you'll remember that uh, the, the, some of Moses' leaders were, 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 were jealous for Moses because the Spirit had come mightily upon some, some men to prophesy, and they basically want Moses to tell them to knock it off. And Moses says, are, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. Undoubtedly, this is a fulfillment to that great desire and prayer on Moses' part. But you can see right from the very start, can't you? Look again at the text. You can see right from the very start that Joel's prophecy actually goes further than the events at, at Pentecost. The text says that it will be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on what? All mankind. Literally all flesh. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Was that prophecy fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? Yes and no. I mean, at this point on the day of Pentecost, as Peter speaks, had the Spirit been given to all flesh? No, the Spirit had been poured out on 120 people. Men and women, you look over at chapter 2 and verse 39, it says, for this promise, note this, is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord will call to himself. Now, we look back at that verse and we understand some things that Peter did not quite yet grasp because Peter is preaching this to a bunch of Jews and every you in there, Peter is thinking, refers to Jews. By the end of the day, there will be 3,000 more Jews who have received the Holy Spirit 
But even then it takes you through Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, all the way out till Acts 10 when Peter, by way of a vision, bumps into a guy by the name of Cornelius who receives the Holy Spirit and Peter goes, lo and behold, I had no idea what I was saying back there in Acts 2. I was right, but I didn't see the breadth of it. I didn't see the width of this. I had no grasp of that. All flesh means all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. And there is going to be in the end a limitless outpouring upon all flesh without distinction and without exception. If we can take all to mean all in this passage, then it may very well, ultimately, Joel may be looking at the fulfillment that will come in the millennial kingdom when everyone who enters it is in fact a believer and every single one of them will have the Spirit in full measure and they will prophesy. There is no class of God's people that will be excluded. Joel tells us, look at it, verse 17, that there will be no limitations as to gender. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. There'll be no limitations as to age. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Or to social status, even on my male and female, look at this, slaves. And I love the fact that here, Peter adds something that Joel did not have in his original text. He throws the word, the, the, the term my in there. This becomes very specific. God is associating himself with male and female slaves. Even the lowest people who belong to me, God says, will, will have my spirit and they shall prophesy. This was not fulfilled at Pentecost. Even a cursory reading of the text tells us that not everything Joel talked about was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It was a, get this, a genuine fulfillment, but it was a partial fulfillment. It's just beginning, if you will, to be fulfilled. We might, for instance, be willing to grant that prophesying happened on this day because people were speaking forth the word of God and his, his great works, even in unlearned languages. But there's no mention of visions or dreams, is there? We don't see, even at Pentecost, all the representative groups of people. We don't see sons and daughters. We don't see young men and old. We don't see slaves, both male and female. And I think, again, we have to come to this and just say, we must admit there is a greater fulfillment that is still to come. This is only the beginning. Look at verse 19 and 20. And I will put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor or columns of smoke the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Were these things fulfilled in any sort of specificity on the day of Pentecost? They were not. None of them really. Some of these things were foreshadowed at the cross. 
We saw that for three hours the sun went dark, didn't it? We saw signs. We saw a veil that was split in two. At his resurrection, we saw, we saw those who had, who had fallen asleep raised from the dead. There were plenty of signs. Christ certainly in his ministry performed many signs and wonders, but we need to remember that Peter is explaining what happened at Pentecost. And you'd be very hard-pressed to identify much of this at all as having been fulfilled in any kind of detail on the day of Pentecost. It's amazing, really, how, how little of Joel 2 actually happens in Acts 2. Does Joel mention anything about the gift of tongues? Does he mention languages at all? He does not. Were there dreams and visions on the day of Pentecost? There were not. Not that are recorded anyway. Was the sun darkened? Nothing's even said about the moon whatsoever. There's no blood. Again, you could look back to the cross, but that's not the day of Pentecost. There's no blood. There are tongues that are like fire, but there is no actual fire there. There are no columns of smoke. You see, Peter is not saying that all of this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. He understands that they will be in time. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, says this, quote, Peter is looking forward to the signs which will herald the end of the world. These are still future, and they belong to the end of the last days rather than to the beginning of the last days which just took place, end quote. And you say, well, why would Peter bring up all of all of Joel 18 to or 28 to 32, if all he really wanted to talk about was the fact that, that God had poured out his spirit upon humanity. Why quote those the rest of the passage? Well, because you have to understand that Peter is setting up his audience for gospel preaching. And he's trying to, to give this clear demarcation that they need to be ready to repent. They need to be ready to humble themselves. They need to be ready today because the day of wrath is coming. God has said so. And he will preach Christ to them. And he wants them to understand not only is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit a clean sign that the final, a clear sign that the final day is upon us? But you need to understand that that sign will very quickly be followed with the next, which will be Christ coming in His glory to judge the living and the dead. All of these celestial disturbances, all of the terrestrial upheaval, they're all referred to in other places in Scripture that have that, that talk about the events surrounding Christ's second coming. If you go through the book of Revelation, and we haven't the time this morning to do it, but you can see in chapters 8 and 9, 14, 16, uh, 18, all of these chapters, there's all kinds of language about blood and fire and smoke. You think about Jesus referring to the, the time of his return and glory in Matthew 24, 
And he says this, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. What a day that will be. You see, these things that are truly awesome, there's another great word that our culture has adopted to simply mean, wow, bro, awesome. No, awesome. Like you will be in awe. It will be far worse if you do not know Christ than you ever thought it would be. And it will be far greater, believer, brother and sister in Christ, than you ever hoped it could be. Christ will return. And that day is fast approaching, and Joel's prophecy stretches from the dawning of the new age with the outpouring of the Spirit all the way to the setting of it. There really are, if you wanted to summarize it, just three points of contact with Pentecost in Acts 2 and Joel's prophecy in Joel 2. Here are those three points of contact. I've given them to you twice already. I'm going to give them to you one more time in hopes that it will stick and do go home and read Joel and reinforce it. Here are the points of contact. God's spirit has been poured out upon believers in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first point in Joel, and that's Peter's first point. God, his spirit, has been poured out upon believers in accordance with scripture, in the fulfillment of prophecy. Number two, there is to be an urgency to repent because the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming, and it is a day of judgment for all who reject God's great salvation. And therefore, the third point of his outline is simply this. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will, in fact, be saved. That's not a hypothetical statement. You see, Peter wants his hearers to understand, and beloved, what you need to understand this morning is that redemption history has rounded the final turn. It is headed for home. That finish line is coming. And there is an urgency, says Joel. The time is now, says Peter. The day is coming, and it will be terrifying. There will be cosmic signs in the sky. There will be convulsions of the earth, there will be blood and there will be fire and there will be smoke. Darkness will prevail. And then the Lord says, I will come with my recompense in hand. Joel chapter 2 and verse 11, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? No one can withstand that day. And this message is a message of impending doom, and we do not like those messages in our day and age. We hope that things, pleasant as they are, will continue on forever, but you have to understand all of history is moving to a goal, and if you don't know Christ, the end will be worse than you think.
This is a message of impending doom. It is a message not just of destruction, but utter destruction. It is a message not just of judgment, but of terrifying judgment. And it will be the day of the Lord's reckoning, a day of dread, a day of panic like this world has never known. People, the scriptures tell us, will be looking for rocks, crying out to the rocks, please cover us. Fall on me. Don't make me face Jesus. And were it not for the final words of Joel's prophecy, you and I would despair as well. But beloved, this is also a message of hope. Verse 21, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let that sink in. The last days are upon us, beloved. The sand is running through the hourglass. Time is running out. And the very God who has promised that he will not hesitate to unleash his wrath upon sin and sinners is the very same God who sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came on a rescue mission. God gave his son over to death as a substitute for every sinner who would place his trust in him that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it has been well said that salvation is a gift. Didn't that text just say it? Salvation is a gift to the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. You've got to get that thinking out of your head. You will not get to heaven on the basis of your own good works. You will not get to heaven because somehow you've earned it or you deserve it. Every one of us is a sinner and every one of us is in desperate need of someone who can give us a righteousness that we cannot earn and who can pay our debt before God for the sins that we've committed and many sinners have humbly repented and received this gift. You remember the thief, the notorious thief, on the cross next to Christ. He called upon Christ and what? Christ forgave him. And from that day forward, he was in paradise with Jesus. And you can remember the many defiled and demon-possessed who call upon his name. Where are they today? They're in heaven, clean and holy, free from the power of the devil. You can think of the immoral prostitute who called upon Christ for salvation. Her sins were forgiven. She lives today guilt-free in the kingdom of God. Listen, my friend, outside of Christ, liars are there, drunkards are there, former murderers are there, former homosexuals are there, former adulterers are there, all of them, any of them who would turn to Christ for hope and for salvation, for life. He will cleanse you and sanctify you, justify you, and live with you eternally in heaven forever. Why would you reject a Christ like that? Beloved, life is so serious. And don't think because God's patience is long that somehow he's going to sweep your sins under the carpet. He will not. 
You will trust in Christ for salvation or you will spend eternity apart from him in hell forever. Paul writes in Romans 10 that the one who believes on him shall not be put to shame. Listen, there is no sin, no sin that you have committed that can keep you out of heaven except your unbelief, except your stubborn pride. Bow the knee before the king of kings. Come, humble yourself, call upon his name. Oh, I pray that you would heed the warning to flee, the wrath to come. There is but one refuge, one safe space, one rock that is higher than we are, one man who can deliver you from judgment, and his name is Jesus. And you can take it from Joel, or you can hear it from Peter, or you can hear it from me this morning. Either way, you have a promise from the God who cannot lie. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're gracious and you're compassionate. You have warned your people about their sins. You have warned your people about the wrath to come. You have trumpeted forth over the, the centuries, over the millennia, the reality that man is sinful and depraved and man is destined for judgment. Lord, you're a holy God who cannot look on evil, and yet you have provided a sacrifice in your son that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be made righteous, that we might live with you for all eternity, and we praise you this morning for your goodness and your kindness to us in Christ. Please help us as we come to the table to be mindful of that goodness and to remember him who died and rose again on our behalf. Amen.